Welcome. What a joy to be together. Listen, guys, I am going to get straight to it. I am loving this series in Ruth. I'm loving what we're doing with this story, with this book. And I, I just like, I just want to like get straight to the meat, I think, that Jesus has for us today. I don't know if you were here last week, but we also, if you noticed this, right? Like we kind of shifted the way we do our liturgy during this series to kind of put the sermon closer to the front end so we can have a little longer time of response and engagement on the tail end of our gathering. And that was so good for my soul last week coming out of just, man, just seeing God's face. In the opening of Ruth, I'm praying uh, that we will have a similar experience today, that, that we will just clearly see the good, present, seeing love of our God in this text, that it would draw us to a place of just response, like actually engaging uh, who he is and what he has for us. So uh, if you have your Bibles today, go ahead and open them up to Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have uh, house Bibles kind of throughout the room underneath some of the seats. You can look for one or ask your neighbor to snag you one. We really care about access to God's Word here at Emmanuel. And so if you're maybe visiting with us today and you don't own a physical copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to snag one of those and take it home. Or uh, talk to one of our pastors and we will get you one that is nicer than the, uh, the Pew Bible, right? Um, but we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2 today. Before we get to our text for today, I want to do a little bit of work to kind of catch us up to some context things about the book of Ruth, but also the story thus far. By the way, if you missed Jim's sermon last week, taking us to the first chapter, I strongly encourage you to go online and check it out. It was brilliant, uh, really thoughtful engagement of the text. But for our purposes today, let me, let me give us two things to put context around the book, and then three things to give us context around where the story sits. So the first one is this. Ruth takes place... In the time of the judges, the opening verse of Ruth reminds us, in the time of the judges. Now, if you don't have just your ancient Israelite history on deck, that's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll give you just a quick refresher. This is a really unique and important period in ancient Israel's history. The era of the judges is after the nation of Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. God had supernaturally manifested himself through the prophet Moses to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt and drew them to the promised land, the land he had covenanted to give these people for generations. And through the general Joshua, they took possession of the land and were living in it. So the era of the judges sees Israel having committed themselves to God through the covenant at Mount Sinai, living in the promised land, but doing so at a time when Israel is really splintered and tribal. They're not unified as a people. They should be unified under the law of God and under the covenant they have and under their common ancestry and all those things. But in the time of the judges, Israel is really splintered. And it's kind of each tribe for himself. And what ends up defining the era of the judges is this cycle back and forth of rebellion against the covenant Israel had made with God and then repentance and submission back to that covenant. So if you go back and read Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, 30, you'll hear Moses talk about what it will look like for Israel to live under this covenant. And specifically, the blessings and curses that go with that covenant. Meaning, if God's people, Israel, holds up their commitment in the covenant, God promises that he will pour out blessings on them. He spells these out very specifically. You'll have land. You'll have plenty of food to eat. You'll have big families and lots of kids. Like, I will take care of you. But if you forsake me, forsake my covenant, then you will lose my blessings. You will receive the due just reward of the cursed and broken world that is ruled by sin. You'll experience things like famine and death and sorrow and all those things. This is spelled out in the end of Deuteronomy when God's people commit themselves afresh to the covenant. But just a few generations later in the era of the judges, you see Israel just continually fail to engage this covenant in any sort of fruitful way. 
And the whole book of Judges tells this story of different tribes of Israel uh, sinning, falling away from covenants, falling into idolatry, seeking after the gods of the Canaanites and things like that, rejecting God and their covenant with them, then experiencing all the suffering that goes with stepping out of covenant, and then repenting and God raising up a redeemer in the form of a judge who frees his people from oppression and draws them to a time of revival. And then once they're in that place of comfort and blessing again, they start the cycle over and fall into sin and fall into idolatry and break away from covenant. And so Judges just has this up and down and up and down and up and down of this cycle of sin and suffering and repentance and blessing and sin and suffering and repentance and blessing and just back and forth and back and forth. And so Ruth lets you know in the first verse, that's where we're at. It's where we are in that time of the Judges. Now, the really, another important thing to put next to this is that Ruth is its own book. It's not placed as a couple chapters within Judges. And the reason for that is important. See, unlike the books surrounding it, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, Ruth is not strictly what we call a history book. Now, don't mishear me in that. I think Ruth accurately represents historical facts, right? Like, I think it's telling us a real story of real people that really happened. But it is written differently from the history books that are around it. Judges, and First and Second Samuel specifically, for the most part, don't give you much author's commentary. For the most part, they're reporting the facts. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. The author of Ruth goes out of his way to tell this historical story in a way that is dramatic and engaging and pleasing. It's, it's kind of like the way we would think of maybe a historical novel, except what, what's going on, like, there's no intent on the author to bend the story here to make it more palatable. It's a great story, right? It, it reads really well on its own. But you see this intent of the author in the way he hands you information. You see, if you're trying to tell a historical narrative, but tell it in a comparing, a compelling novel-type way, you can't change the story to make it more interesting. You have to use the data you have. So the tools that this author has are basically when and where and how they present the info to you. And you see that in the Ruth. The author hands you tidbits of information to explain more of the story at crucial times that let you as the reader in on stuff that the characters in the story don't know yet. And so you, you see this kind of creative, thoughtful way the author is handing us the story to amp up the drama, to draw us in, because there's something really important about the story of Ruth. Something really important that connected, by the way, to the teaching of the entire Bible caught up in the story of Ruth. So, a couple narrative pieces to get us caught up to our text today in chapter 2. This story opens with a Jewish family in the city of Bethlehem leaving the promised land during a time of famine. So for whatever reason, Israel is experiencing famine. If you go just off of like Deuteronomy 28 and 29, right, like we're probably talking about a down cycle in the time of the judges when people are far from God and experiencing the covenant curses. But Elimelech and his family choose during that time to leave Israel and go to Moab for a season. Now, we can talk all day long about why they would choose to do that and how that would be maybe a a normative choice, right? But there is some theological implications packed into this. See, Moab isn't just outside the promised land. And by the way, We miss this piece, kind of, I think, as modern Christian readers of this, but for the ancient Israelites, the land rights, the land rights were such a deeply important part of the covenant. They were the the tangible expression of God's present caretaking love for his people. I have given you the land. So much so that God didn't just say, here's Israel, Israel, go take it. No, 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 no. Through Joshua... God specifically divvied up property lines for families and clans. Your family was given directly by God the chunk of land that was to be your present physical experience of the caretaking love of God for all generations in perpetuity, right? This idea of the connection to the land is a really important part of the way the ancient Israelites understood their covenant connection to God. So in a time of famine, Elimelech leaves. 
he takes his family, he goes to Moab, which isn't a neutral space. Moab is actively an enemy of God. If you go and read Israel's history, the Moabites hired a magician to bring curses on Israel when they were wandering through the desert. The Moabites didn't allow the Israelites to step through their land, threaten them with war to make them go around. The Moabites accosted the Israelites in the midst of their suffering. They were so, so like confrontational with the Israelites that at one point, the prophet Moses cursed the entire people and said, Moab has no inheritance, has no place. Now, we have to remember, like, Judaism is not necessarily a terribly, especially ancient Judaism, is not necessarily a terribly evangelistic religion, right? They're not necessarily seeking people out to join their covenant. But God made provisions all throughout the old covenant for what it looked like for someone to pursue after the one true God and find a place in his covenant. But Moab didn't get that. Moses said, nope, Moab, you're terrible. You treated us terrible. You have no place in us. Go away. Be far from us. You never are allowed in, right? So Elimelech takes his family to Moab because there there's food. Again, this is this picture of the author handing us little bits of detail that have these like deeper theological meanings behind them, right? And if you read through Ruth chapter one, it goes terribly. Elimelech dies. His sons marry Moabite women, which they should not have done. And then they die. And chapter one leaves us with Naomi as a Jewish widow living in Moab with two Moabite daughters-in-law who are also widows. She hears that there is food to be had in Israel. And so she begins to make her way back to Bethlehem where she came home, back to the promised land that was actually given to her family. She convinces one of her daughter-in-laws to go home to her father, but the other one, Ruth, refuses. Ruth clings to her, says, I am going to be with you for life. Your land is my land. Your people is my people. Your God is my God. I am with you. Now, there's a couple things kind of wrapped up in this that really set up the scene for us in chapter two. The first one is this. Ruth is essentially taking on the identity of her family that she's married into, saying, no, 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 no. I'm not a Moabite. I'm not going back to my dad to marry a Moabite. Like, I, I have joined your family. Like, I am, I'm in this. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. I am with you to the end, which is beautiful. But here's the thing. She actually had no right to do that. <laughs> she was a Moabite who had been cursed and told, you are not allowed to enter into the covenant. Pretty intense. It's pretty, pretty black and white in scripture, by the way, that they're not allowed in. And so when Naomi is trying to tell her daughters-in-law to go home, she has good reason for this. Not only is she returning home impoverished with no real, like, like legitimate plan or hope to end her poverty, there are not laws in place to help a widow, a single female widow, obtain her family's property. She had no rights to those things. There's no social safety net in place for her. Not only is she stepping into poverty with no guarantee of changing that, Jews pretty much universally hated Moabites. There's a ton of prejudice Ruth would experience, potentially even violence. So Naomi's like, hey, go home. This is not good for you. This will not end well for you. But Ruth refuses. Ruth has, has seen the covenant family of God in whatever way, it doesn't tell us how, but she says, nope, this, this is mine. I'm doing this. And so they do. They return to Bethlehem together. And chapter one ends with this beautiful little note. It says, they came at the time of the barley harvest, which is this amazing little glimmer of hope. And it's contrasted, by the way, with Naomi's return. She returns with all this sorrow and bitterness. She literally tells her friends, you need to call, call me by a different name. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she has all this anger and hurt toward God. I went away full. I came back empty. The Lord has done this to me. My life is terrible. Which, by the way, her life is pretty terrible, right? Like, it's actually pretty understandable. Her bitterness, her hurt, her suffering. But it ends with, it's the time of the barley harvest. Which again, is the author trying to just pique our attention really quick. Because remember, this is the time of the judges. This is the time when Israel waffles back and forth between godliness and holiness and commitment to covenant and rebellion and idolatry and the curses of the covenant. And right now, in Bethlehem, there's a barley harvest. Which means God is blessing his people. 
means God is walking in connection and caretaking love for his people. And so even though Mara, Naomi, is coming home with her Moabite daughter-in-law, full of bitterness, full of sorrow, full of hurt, with no real hope for her future, the author immediately lets you know that's not how this story is going to go down. There is hope. I love Ruth as a story. I love Ruth as a story because you don't need my help to see the gospel in it. Any, any one of us could sit down and read Ruth. It's very short in one sitting. And just, man, just gospel throughout the entire book. God's present caretaking love for his people is so obviously on the front page of Ruth. It's so easy to engage, right? Like literally, like you could just go home and read it and you'd be good. But there are these cultural and historical elements that are easy to kind of drift over. And so what I'd like to do today is take us through chapter two, kind of chunk by chunk. I'm going to pray. We'll walk through it together. And I'm just going to do my best to kind of get out of the way and just kind of point to a couple of these historical and cultural pieces to hopefully just kind of clarify it for you guys some as you engage this story and just see what God has for us. And spoiler alert, it's really good. But what we're going to see in this text is that we worship a God who sees us. We worship a God who doesn't just see us, but has deep and abiding love for us. And this is the piece that I think is actually going to be really important for a lot of us in the room today is this. We worship a God whose love and care and presence for us is not dependent on what we bring to the table. We worship a God who loves us in spite of our current estate in spite of what we bring to the table. Beloved, those who seek God, find him. If you want him, you have him, period. Lord does not withhold from those who actually long to be with him. What a God we serve. So, with all that in mind, pray with me, and we're going to start working our way through this. Jesus, we ask today that you would just... Just give us clear, fresh eyes to see you again, Lord. Whether we're in this space and we're still considering and praying and seeking and deciding if we want to pursue you, Lord, or whether we're in this space and we have known you for decades, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see you new for the first time today, Lord. To see your love, to see your presence, to see your affection for us, to see your satisfaction with those who, who are actually washing your blood, Jesus. Help us to to come to you, fall at your feet, find refuge under your wings today, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Ruth chapter two, verse one. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. We're gonna meet Boaz this chapter. And again, this is just this perfect little picture of how the author of Ruth sets up the book. We're stepping into a new scene, but before we step into the scene, the author just goes, hey, I just want you to know this part. So you as the reader get this little tidbit of information that the characters aren't going to be aware of till the last verse of this chapter, right? You get let in on what's about to happen before everyone else gets to see it. I love that. Verses... Two and three says this. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So this, this part is actually pretty interesting for us. The story opens as sorrowfully, or the scene opens as sorrowfully as chapter one ended. What we've essentially got here is Ruth and Naomi back in Bethlehem. And by the way, the text doesn't directly tell us this, but it's very likely that they've just stepped back onto their ancestral property. Elimelech had a place in the covenant, had assigned land, just like all of the other peoples of his clan and tribe. It's very likely there was a house sitting there boarded up from when they left. And so you get this image of Ruth and Naomi stepping back into Bethlehem, and you can even imagine them in this large, empty house with these large fallow fields with no money to care for it and no food and no ability to do anything with it. Starving, quite literally starving. In the middle of the barley harvest, right? But Ruth is not content with this state. And so she says to Naomi, hey, I think I'm going to go glean 
Now, there's a couple things going on here. The gleaning law is one of the most unique aspects of the ancient Israelite social safety net. It's a really interesting thing, and we need to understand that and understand what's going on. You see, across the board in the ancient Near East, gleaning was a common practice for those who were impoverished as a way of like trying to survive, especially in times of harvest. Essentially, it was this. You would find a field where harvesters are working, gathering grain, gathering whatever plant is being gathered up, and you would wander behind them and pick through their leavings. Whatever they left behind, you'd pick through and see if they dropped some good grain. And so it was essentially doing, by the way, just as long a work day, just as much labor as the actual harvesters, but in general, bringing about maybe a hundredth of the actual harvest, right? It's literally picking through what's left behind. Now, it's important to note that even though this is a common practice, in the world at large, there was no guarantee that anyone was actually allowed to do this. In fact, some wealthy business people would take some of their slaves and servants and tell them to glean to make sure they harvested 100% of what was in that particular field. And if some poor person came along to try and glean, they would be kicked out, accosted, yelled, attacked, whatever it is. But God actually sets this up as a law in the Mosaic Covenant and says, you are required to allow anyone to glean who wants to glean, whether they're Jewish whether they're a foreigner, whoever it is, if someone comes to you and wants to glean, you allow them, period. Not only that, God actually commanded his people to not harvest their field all the way to the edge, but to leave the uneven edges of the rows completely just growing naturally so there would always be a source of food for those who are impoverished. God set this up, right? Now, again, remember, Israel is in a point in their history where there's basically zero guarantee at any given point that God's people are actually following God's law, right? But for whatever reason, for whatever reason being God's sovereign appointment, right? For whatever reason, Ruth the Moabitess finds herself amongst God's people needing food in the time of the harvest at a time when God's people, at least some of them, are following the law. And so gleaning is available to her. So she says to Naomi, I think I'm going to go glean. There's a couple things that we actually need to note here. The first one is this. There's zero reason for Ruth to do this and not Naomi. Like, actually, very little reason. Naomi's old. Not really, though. Not actually old. She's not, she's not like, hanging out in her mid-80s or whatever. Like, Naomi's probably 50, 55. And some of you are like, that's not old, and that's insulting. <laughs> There's no reason for Naomi to not be out helping with the work. And the text doesn't tell us why, but we know that she is in a place of deep sorrow. And all of us have likely either experienced or seen when someone in a place of depression, sorrow, despair, is just not willing to do the kind of things they need to do to care for themselves. So for whatever reason, Naomi's not willing to do this. Embarrassment, health, sorrow, depression, whatever it is. But Ruth is. And here's the thing. Ruth has no guarantee this will go well for her. Because even though God's people have a law in place for this, she has no way of knowing if the people harvesting these fields follow those laws. And by the way, she's not just any foreigner living amongst God's people. She is a Moabite. And there is extreme prejudice against her and her people. And she is a young, single woman walking out amongst the harvesters. This is actually a risky thing for her. This could put her in physical peril. She could be attacked. She could be kicked away. She could be sexually assaulted. These sorts of things are common for young women trying to do these things. But she says, we're starving, so I'm going to go try it, right? And Naomi's like, I mean, yeah, sure, fine. So she goes... Read with me. Verse 3. So Ruth left and entered into the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She just so happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Come on, church. Just so happened to be in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, a member of her family, a godly man. A godly man who honors God and follows his laws, who allows gleaning, who hires honest, godly workers so that she is allowed to do the work and she is not accosted and her family is cared for. 
just so happened. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful picture of God's sovereign love in action, working to care for his daughter, working to care for his people. Just so happened to wander into Boaz's field. Let's read a larger chunk here, starting in verse 4. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. So Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? The servant answered, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Noab. She asked, Will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles from your harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little bit in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young man not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down and bowed to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land. How you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. May you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you. For you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. I love this piece. There's so much going on here. We finally get introduced to Boaz, a wealthy, godly man. He's come to inspect how the harvest of his field is going. The author goes out of his way to let you know that Boaz is actively practicing the faith because he actually gives his workers the priestly greeting using the name of God, Yahweh be with you. And they respond with you as well, right? Like there is this intentional part on the author to let you know Boaz is godly. And then we see that play out. He, he immediately recognizes Ruth, not recognizes her, but recognizes that she's not one of his employees, right? Walks up and is like, who is that? And one of his workers comes and reports, oh, that's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. And you notice here, by the way, how quickly the worker goes to talking about how hard Naomi is working. Do you notice that? It's really weird, kind of like kind of a strange way for the sentence to go. Yeah, that's the Moabitess. Hey, listen, she's been working her tail off all day long. It's kind of like, that's a, that's a strange first piece of data to give, Mr. Worker. The reason for that is simple and sorrowful. The Jewish people are incredibly prejudiced against the Moabites. They don't like these people. They have tons of social negative stereotypes about them. It's a very real chance this worker is surprised that she spent all day working hard to care for her family. And so he lets Boaz know that information right off the bat. Yeah, it's the Moabite. She is working her tail off. Been on her feet all day long, except for a short break she took. And Boaz calls her over and begins to speak to her. And you just, you just immediately see, you immediately see his care for Ruth. You immediately see how he talks to her about like, listen, 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 listen. It is good that you're here. Stay, keep working in this field. For the rest of the harvest, stay with this field. Stay with my workers. You are safe here. No one's going to mess with you. Use our shelter. Drink our water. Stay here. And Ruth, Ruth is blown away by this. It's a beautiful scene, right? Like You immediately see that Boaz is concerned with providing for Ruth. Which, which like, it, that might seem natural to us. Because we're just like, yeah, there's this young lady in deep need, right? Like, this guy has the ability. But notice Ruth is shocked by it. She did not see that coming. And by the way, we shouldn't have seen that coming either. The ancient Jewish readers reading this would have been given a little bit of pause by this point in the story. Now, really quick, I want to do a quick insert here before we go on. Because I'm sure some of us in the room are starting to do a little, like buck a little bit at the story. I mean, it's this kind of stereotype, right? Like Ruth needs a man to come and save her. That's kind of distasteful in our society. And honestly, right, like we can even say like, yeah, that is pretty distasteful. That's, that's fine. Here's the thing we have to remember as you read the story, if that's you in the room. Yes, Ruth did in fact need a man to come and save her. 
That doesn't mean that Ruth is weak. That doesn't, I mean, Ruth is obviously a strong, brave woman. The story has told us that over and over and over. But here's the thing. The author of this book is relating to us a historical tale, something that actually happened, right? And in the history, the context, the culture within which this happened, one billion percent Ruth needed a man to come and save her because she had zero legal rights. She had no ability to open a checking account, to own property, to gain an inheritance. She was absolutely stuck. The options for her as a young widow were get married again or become a prostitute or starve to death, A, B, or C. Like, which do you prefer? That's not pleasant, but that's the reality of it, right? And in that reality, we see God's present working love in sovereignly drawing Ruth along and bringing her to Boaz, a godly, wealthy man with means, means to meet her in her need and with the actual moral convictions to do so. Which, to bring us back to this, is the weird part. Ruth is surprised by this. She's surprised by Boaz's kindness. Why would you do this for me? Remember, Jews hated Moabites. A religious man like Boaz would have been just as likely to kick her off his land as he would to say hello to her. But Boaz tells her exactly why he's treating her like this. Ruth's character speaks louder than the negative cultural stereotypes about her. I'm sure there are plenty of Jews who lived in Bethlehem at that time who wrote Ruth off as a wicked Moabite whose poverty was well-deserved for her people's wickedness. But Boaz does not define her by her ethnicity. We see that Boaz seems to see Ruth as a person. Sees her as a woman of character who loves her family, who works hard to provide. Boaz somehow sees past the cultural narrative about Ruth and he sees Ruth. Look, look, look what he says to her. This is, this is so important. I'm going to read this part again. This is verse 12. May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz speaks not just immediate physical provision over her. He speaks godly spiritual blessing over her. This language is about her receiving the full reward of Yahweh under whose wings she has sought refuge. He's saying, may you enjoy the blessings of our people's covenant with God. May you be in covenant with us. May you be one of us. And he connects it to God covering over her. Once again, Ruth is astounded at Boaz's kindness and blessing toward her. And again, we should be as well even with the bits and pieces we know about this story. There's a whole lot of hatred towards Moabites in this culture. Moabites are forbidden from entering into God's covenant by command of Moses, right? Why is Boaz able to rise above the limitations of his culture and speak such love and honor to this young woman? Hold on to that question, because that is where we're going to land this thing today. Let me keep reading here. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread. Dip it in the vinegar sauce. Mmm, yummy, vinegar sauce. (laughs) So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain even among the bundles and do not humiliate her. In fact, pull out some of the stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out or or, or put together what she had gathered. It was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. So as the story continues, Boaz invites the starving Ruth to eat dinner with his workers, right? She eats to her heart's content and has leftovers to take home for Naomi. And then we get this this really interesting picture of Boaz's extended provision for Ruth. He tells his workers to purposefully drop extra grain in front of her. And then he goes out of his way to say, do not humiliate her. Don't embarrass her. He doesn't want Ruth to feel patronized. 
She is working her tail off to provide for her family. And Boaz is honoring that labor. So Ruth finishes a single day's work and threshes her gleanings. And she ends up with a full measure of barley grain. I know like not many of us spend a lot of time threshing our gleanings. And so maybe we're not connecting to this idea real quick. We're talking about 40 to 50 pounds of grain, right? This is the Costco size bag of dog food is the picture you're supposed to get of Ruth wandering home with this sack over her shoulder, right? From one day's worth of gleaning. That is an insane amount of grain to gather from one day's gleaning. A lot of, a lot of scholars say that a gleaning, like someone gleaning in an actual like normative context could expect to harvest maybe a fifth of that after a 14-hour day of work. <laughs> but she wanders home to Naomi with her Costco bag of dog food. And then is like, oh, I brought dinner too. <laughs> and Naomi eats. I, I love this. Ruth leaves the house empty and comes back full. And Naomi eats a meal. And there's something about this that seems like it kind of sparks Naomi out of her, out of her like sorrow. Read, read on with me to the end of the chapter. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law, whom she had worked with, and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. So Ruth the Moabite has said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished the harvest. So Naomi told her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. So Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I love this scene, the way it comes together. Ruth leaving empty, coming back full, abounding with God's provision. And how it just kind of like shakes Naomi a little bit out of what's going on. And there's this, oh, you went where? You went to, Boaz is one of our relatives. He's one of our, yes, you should keep going there. And she, she refers to this idea calling Boaz a potential redeemer. Now this part's actually important for us. So if you'll kind of just bear with me like a little like heady piece of this for just a minute. She's actually referring, this concept of the redeemer is actually a reference to two different laws under the Mosaic law, but that both speak to the same spirit. And it's all connected to this idea of God's covenant granting specific families chunks of the promised land in perpetuity. This is the Leverite marriage and the concept of the kinsman redeemer. The first idea is the, the concept of the kinsman redeemer. This is a law that said if a family fell into poverty and their land was going to either be sold or left barren, a close family member would be obligated, if they could afford it, to buy the land from that family and care for it and then sell it back to the family when they got back on their feet. The second law here is the idea of Leverite marriage. This law stated that if a husband died without bearing any sons who could legally receive his inheritance, the land that God had assigned to him, then someone in his family, a brother, would step in and father a son with the widow so the family name, line, and property would continue. Now what's strange is that neither of these laws directly applies to Ruth and Naomi's situation, but the principle behind both of the laws, it directly applies. And it goes back to this idea. God's covenant with his people in the promised land is directly connected. His provision, his love is directly, concretely shown to them through, I have provided you with this parcel of land for you and your children for generations to come. You will see my faithfulness to you and how I provide to you through this land. And so if something happened that broke that cycle, there were laws in place to continue it, to help families continue on experiencing the blessing of God. Ruth and Naomi are in an awkward situation because the land is sitting there. They have no legal way of claiming it, no money to care for it, and no child to inherit it. They're stuck. So the principle of the law continues. Someone needs to buy up that land to make sure it's cared for so the next generation can get it. But even if Boaz, the wealthy man, were to do that, there is no actual child to inherit it. So someone 
needs to marry into that family and provide a child to receive the inheritance. The problem there is that Elimelech's sons married Moabites. So what good godly Jewish man is going to step in and marry the Moabite widow and father a child? No one. It's a big risk. Very few people will be willing to not only take on that financial obligation, but take on the social shame that would go with marrying a Moabite to father a child. It leaves them in a very awkward situation. Which brings us back to the central question we're going to land on today. Naomi sees how Boaz treated Ruth, and she thinks to herself, maybe. This might work. Something might actually happen here. But it leaves us back with, why? Why would Boaz do that? Who in their right mind would take on that much work and that much risk? The answer, beloved, is that Boaz knows something about Yahweh that the average person doesn't really know or doesn't really keep track of. He knows something about Yahweh that many of us today don't really actively consider. Boaz knows that the God of the universe does not look on outside appearances. He knows that God does not choose who has access to his covenant love and care based on their genes, their race, how godly they are, or anything else. He knows that God includes everyone in his covenantal love who wants to be included in his covenantal love. Boaz is able to see past Ruth as a Moabite who should be cursed, who should be kept from the covenant because he sees her genuine heart to seek after God and to trust him. And beloved, everyone who desires God gets him. Everyone who seeks him finds him. Everyone who falls on the mercy of God in faith receives the refuge of his wings. They're covered over. They're cared for. Boaz knows this more than most people because he is the son of another famous woman in Scripture. Boaz was the son of a woman named Rahab. Now, if you don't know this story in Joshua 6, Rahab was a pagan Canaanite prostitute who defected to Israel in faith because she saw the power of God protecting and caring for Israel, and she trusted the Lord. Because of that, she was given not just safety from the sacking of Jericho, but she was given a place amongst the covenant people of Israel. Eventually, she married a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, and she bore a son named Boaz. See, Boaz's own mother was a woman who had no place in the covenant, and yet she received it by faith in the Lord. Boaz sees Ruth outworking her tail off, providing for her family. And he sees the same trusting faith. And beloved, he already knows how God will respond. So Boaz treats Ruth as a sister in covenant. He cares for her. He blesses her. He treats her like a sister in the faith, not a Moabite. Is that not, beloved, how the Father treats each and every one of us? Is that not how God seeks us out? Is that consider you based on what you bring to the table? We are all sinners. Every single one of us. God loves and accepts those who come to him in faith. There's this strange critique of Christianity that floats around a lot right now. It basically says like, why does God have all these rules? If he loves you and cares for you, like, why does he care about how you practice your sexuality or your romance or your ethics or what religion you follow or whatever. If he's, if he's so good and he's so godly and he's so big, like, shouldn't he just be above all those things and not really care? That makes sense if you define love by the idea that to love someone you must approve and support every woman desire they have. But the reality is, this is not the love of God. And to be honest, we all actually know that that's not a real expression of love. To claim that to love someone, you must actively accept and support every whim and decision and desire they have is not actually a claim of love. We know that true love does not encourage and approve of anything that someone does, no matter what. People often in desire and practice things that are bad for themselves, right? People often have desires that are self-destructive. People often have habits and practices and things that they love to do that are actually bad for them. And true love, the love of God, desires the absolute best for the object of love. While, by the way, simultaneously, 
respecting the object of love so much as to allow them the freedom to do exactly what they want. There's a both and here. You can love someone enough to desire the best for them while honoring them enough to allow them to do what they want to do. Those things can be held simultaneously. The love of God allows everyone to live exactly the life they please while simultaneously desiring that all would repent and come to, love, come to God in love and submission to his good will, to his perfect future for everyone. It's not fair or reasonable to accuse God of lacking in love because he refuses to, to support desires, actions, or behaviors that are ultimately destructive, right? Rather, God loves you enough to let you do as you wish while also inviting you to do and to be what he actually meant for you to do and be. Again, the love of God is freely available to all. Everyone who wants God gets him. This accusation says, that's not actually true. Because if you want to be with God, you have to do all the stuff he says you want to do. And that's not really love, that's oppression. That's just not, it's just not true. It's not reasonable. God, the love of God, the, the blessing of God, the covenant of God, the gospel of Jesus is freely available to all who want it. But yes, yes, to be with God, to receive that, you must submit to him as Lord. That's not oppression. Because if you don't want that, you don't have to do it. God honors enough to say, live your life how you desire. But my love, my desire for you is that you would, you would be what I made you to be and live in true life and freedom and love and joy. We see in Ruth a Moabite who had no reason to think she had a place in the kingdom of God. That's wild to me. Like, she just, I mean, probably didn't know that Moses said this, right? But just the idea that Moses is like, no, Moabites are not allowed in. And Ruth was like, mm, I don't know. This God seems pretty good. I'm all in. And God, you can just kind of imagine him looking at Moses being like, I don't know, dude. Like, just, she has tons of faith. I think we're doing this. Like, <laughs> she had no reason to believe she had a right to do that. And she falls at the feet of the Lord in faith. I need you. I want this. I want to be your people. I want to be under your, under your protection. I want to be a part of your covenant. And God's respond is, response is, yep, welcome. Come under my wings. Find refuge. Ruth came to God and sought shelter, and she found it. Chris, if you want to come back up, we're going to take a minute to pray and just respond to this and worship for a few minutes. But I want to give you this thought, church, as we end. You can find shelter under the wings of your creator. You don't have to. He won't force you. You can live your life however you want. But if what you want is connection to your creator, if what you want is freedom from the power of sin and death over you, if what you want is intimacy and forgiveness and life and connection with Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the lover of your soul, the sustainer of your very life, if you want that, it is freely available to you. There is nothing that you bring to the table that will keep you from the love of God. If you seek him, you find him, period. If Ruth the Moabitess can just faith her way into the covenant beloved I guarantee you can as well you fall at the feet of your Lord and say I need you I want you you get him it doesn't matter what circumstances bring you to that place it doesn't matter what things you struggle with it doesn't matter what you have done it doesn't matter what has been done to you it does not matter how dark you see your own heart the love of God is sufficient draw you in, heal you, forgive you, to love you, to include you. Beloved, God is freely available to you. If you want him, you have him. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to read us, just to end our time, I'm going to read us Psalm 91. It's a psalm that actually is partially inspired by the text we read today. They're connected. You'll see in the language. Really beautiful. I'm going to read this over you. I would encourage you to listen to this psalm. You can even open your Bible and read it along with me if you'd like. I'm going to pray this psalm over us. And I want to encourage each and every one of us in this room, regardless of where you are with Christ today. Again, if you're in a place where you're still considering whether you want this, you're in a place where you've been following Christ for decades or anything in between, 
want to encourage you to consider him afresh. Consider the love he has for you. Consider the way he thinks about you. The way he seeks you out, the way he cares for you. And consider, beloved, the invitation that stands before you here, now, today. If you want your God, you can have him. Right here and right now. I'm going to read this, pray this over us. And then we're going to sing a few songs. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will, can say, I will say concerning the Lord who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness is a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side, though 10,000 at your very right hand, a pestilence will not reach you. You will not see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked because you have made the Lord my refuge, the most high your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will give his angels, his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They'll support you with their hands. They'll not strike your foot against a stone. They'll not tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the unlined serpent because he has his heart set on me. I will deliver him. I'll protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him give him honor. I will satisfy him with long life. I will show him my salvation. As I read that, some of you were in your head were going, I thought that one was about Jesus. It is. That's where this thing lands. Beloved, you want to have God? Jesus gets you there. You take refuge under his wings. Jesus opens the path for you to do that. You want to find life and freedom. Jesus bought it for you, made it available. Let's take a few minutes, let's sing to that God who is present and eager and waiting for us. Let's celebrate that gospel.